Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good evening, everyone. It is 6.09 in the Twin Cities. Uh, 46 degrees right now. Uh, Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock, along with producer David Josephson, who's the producer of this show, but I never see you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you're obviously uh, steering the big ship with uh, Dave Lee. Well, something like mornings. that, yeah. Yes. Keeping it, uh, keeping it uh, out of the ditch on uh, weekday out, Well, mornings, it's, yeah. it's not hard to keep that show out of the ditch because it's, uh, it's a wonderful show. I uh, listen to Dave Lee every morning, certainly when I'm driving in, but uh, different hours for you. Yes, yeah, I, the alarm goes off. It's not even early. It's the middle of the night. I know, I know. Well, you know something? I actually have that just one day a week. I get up at 3.30 in the morning on Sundays Yeah. Uh, to do you know the Sunday morning show, WCCO-TV, 6 a.m. And also 10.30 a.m. We have our last politics show, myself and Pat Kessler. So please tune in and watch it. We're going to be going over all of the races and we're doing some of that tonight. But it's awesome because tonight we get an extra hour. It's like sleeping till 4.30. <laughs> So convenient for you that that early morning comes after your right. night shift here on the radio. Right, I right? know. It's the one that's really painful is the one in the spring. Oh, yeah, where you lose yeah, it. Yeah, 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 when you spring forward, and that is not uh, a good thing. But that is really, really sweet. I mean, I almost feel like it's uh, a gift, a gift of an hour. But uh, we have a wonderful show lined up for you that uh, David Josephson put together for you. Um, coming up, we are going to be talking to uh, Angie Craig. She is the DFL candidate uh, in the 2nd Congressional District, uh, Jason Lewis uh, had an event tonight. He could not join us. But uh, I've done this w- the past few weeks, just sort of visited with some of these candidates. It's a wonderful opportunity because you get more time. I mean, it's the wonderful thing about radio. Uh, and in our 7.30 half hour, we actually are going to be joined by David Hughes. He is the Republican candidate in the 7th Congressional District. We have not heard a lot about this race. That is the district that's currently held by a uh, Democratic incumbent Colin Peterson. And just this week, Real Clear Politics, which is one of the, the main key evaluators of races all over the country, moved that race to a toss-up status. So that is really, really interesting. Uh, David uh, Hughes, the challenger there. And then also Jeff Johnson, uh, the Republican candidate for governor. And of course, at 8 o'clock, we'll talk with David Schultz. So let's take a quick break and uh, we should be able to get Angie Craig on in just uh, a couple of minutes. Stay tuned. 6.15 in the Twin Cities, Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Well, Tuesday's the election. Uh, I can't wait. I think a lot of people are probably ready for this to be over, especially uh, with the tsunami of, of ads that, that we've all had. Um, in this show, the past few weeks, we visited with uh, some of the congressional candidates and some of the candidates in, in some of the key races. And uh, this evening, we are going to visit with Angie Craig. She's the Democratic candidate for the 2nd Congressional District. Uh, I will tell you that we did reach out to Congressman Jason Lewis, the Republican candidate who was elected for the first time in 2016. He did have an engagement, was not able to join us. But Angie Craig is right here. Angie, how are you? Esme, I'm great. Thanks for having me on this evening. Absolutely. Well, listen, let me ask you, I mean, Campaigns are so tough and so hard. You run nonstop and then suddenly it's over on Tuesday. How have the past few days gone and how is this home stretch going for you? 
Well, I am so excited. We have been all over this congressional district over the last couple of days, and obviously throughout the last couple of years. Today, we were in uh, Northfield, and there were literally hundreds of people who uh, showed up to hear us talk about uh, the election on Tuesday, and we had about 60 people sign up for shifts. People are still shiny, uh, signing up for shifts to go door knocking and to phone back. Wow. And I've never seen anything like it. Uh, we were in Shakopee yesterday, in Jordan, in Burnsville, in New Craig, in Apple Valley, and we've got a host of other cities coming up uh, in the next three days. Let, let me ask you this. You ran two years ago, and the polls a week or so out, maybe eight days out, showed you up by five. You end up ended up losing in a very, very close race just by a few thousand votes. How does this compare with the kinds of crowds you're getting, with the kind of feel that you're seeing out there? I, I can't even compare the two, to be honest really? with you, Esme. It's, it's uh, you know, we go into a room today to kick off a door knock, a canvas, and a third of the room raises their hand that uh, they weren't involved in politics before 2018. Um, in our district, uh, people have had Jason Lewis as their congressman for two years, and uh, there are people showing up all over the place who are still upset that he wouldn't meet with voters when that health care bill, the HCA, was uh, passed in 2017. And there are still people who really believe uh, that he has not done what he needs to do for middle class and middle class families and small businesses. So people are fired up. I think they're ready to send a message. You know, that district was won by Donald Trump, but very, very narrowly. Uh, in 2016. It's obviously a district where there's a, a deep partisan divide, and it, it covers that southern, goes sort of from Woodbury, sort of down south into some more agricultural areas. What, how do you address that? Because there obviously, there, there's a split there in that district. Well, I, I, I can't resist, as May just pointing out, that Woodbury actually isn't in the congressional district, and that's where Jason Lewis lives, outside oh, okay. the second congressional district. So, um, you know, what, what, what I tell you people are saying, and it's really fascinating, is um, we gave Republicans uh, two years. They've had control of the House, the Senate, uh, the White House, and they haven't done anything to fix health care. They haven't done anything to help uh, the middle class and uh, wage growth. In fact, you know, 64% of Americans, just think about this for a minute. We spent $2 trillion um, under Republican leadership. We added it to our debt. And 64% of Americans in a Gallup survey recently, three weeks ago, said they haven't felt more money in their paychecks. Look, certainly the tax bill helped somebody. Uh, it helped big corporations. It helped the top 5%. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, gas prices keep going up. Prescription drug prices keep going up. And, uh, you know, voters are, are ready to send a message that they would like a change in, in leadership and, frankly, a change in tone uh, from our leadership in this country. You know, one of the things that's happened uh, or that happened in 2016 was that there was a last-minute surge of, of voters uh, that registered the same day in, in your district. It happened all over the state. Obviously, we have a same-day registration for voting. The average is about 11.9 percent. It was heavier, though, in, in some districts, including yours. You also had a third-party candidate that, that I think personally, I know Mr. Lewis feels that that, that third party candidate took votes from him, but I believe Paul Overby definitely took an awful lot of votes from you. Uh, what do you think is going to happen on Election Day? Because you've had the Trump administration. Uh, the Trump administration has come to the first congressional district, which is your neighboring district, and, and President Trump has 
personally campaigned for Jason Lewis. Uh, he is, you know, Vice President Pence w- was you know, in Hudson today campaigning for congressional candidates. What what about the Trump effect? <laughs> well, you you asked about polling a minute ago. I tell you, when I started running for Congress uh, here in the second race, as you mentioned, I lost just by uh, over one percent in in a year where six percent of our voters in 2016 registered on election day. Six percent, and I came up just over one percent short. And you also mentioned that uh, we had a third party candidate, a fellow Democrat, in the race. Um, I I told. Uh, I've told folks along the way that uh, I, I should have hired um, a psychic instead of a pollster. Uh, you know, hopefully our polling. Well, I think it's hard in Minnesota. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 you know, the fact that the same day registration, I think I think it's it is. You know, something that, that really allows people easier access to the ballot. But but it's very difficult to predict. Yeah. And I think some of these polls these days, especially with the reliance on cell phones, are simply not as accurate as they used to be. Well, the other factor in this district, Esme, and it's fascinating, 38% of our congressional district actually identifies as an independent voter, neither a Democrat or a Republican. And so, you know, I trust the voters of this district. And what I've asked folks to do is to take a good look at, you know, what are my policy positions? What are Jason Lewis's policy positions? Who is going to best reflect Minnesota values in the Congress? Who's going to be looking for common ground in Washington, which I think we need a whole lot more of, frankly, from both sides of the aisle. And Jason has voted with the Republican Party over 96% of the time. And, you know, I, I would leave that to independent voters to, to verify. But, you know, I'm going to be someone who, uh, you know, I grew up in a mobile home court. I worked two jobs to put myself through college. I believe that if you're, you know, if you're willing to work hard in this country, this country uh, ought, to, ought to work for you. And so I, I really believe that independent voter, um, the 38% of this district who are going to be looking at who will best represent their values in the Congress. I'm, I'm so optimistic here in this election cycle. But again, as you said, um, you know, the only poll that counts is the uh, poll, uh, you know, the actual vote on Election Day. In terms of health care, that seems to be the absolute top priority in so many of these races. And I believe it's also the top issue in your race that you've identified it as. One of the things that happened in 2016 is that a lot of people in your district, especially those who are farmers, uh, independent business people, self-employed people, really got nailed with, with, with significant premiums and significant out-of-pocket costs under Obamacare. And when we talk about significant premiums, we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars. It appears to have gotten better. Obamacare is more popular now than it ever has been. Where, and I know that you're a supporter uh, of, of Obamacare, where, where do you see this issue here and how do you see it falling? Well, when you say a supporter, look, I mean, this has been the healthcare law in our nation for nearly a decade. Um, you know, I support some of the things that the Affordable Care Act tackled, like obviously protections for folks with pre-existing conditions. And I love being able to keep my four boys on our health insurance until they're 26 years old and that women don't have to pay more than men anymore. But there are some things that need to be fixed about this, um, about our health care in this country. And, you know, I've got a farmer in the district. They pay $24,000 a year for coverage with a $12,000 deductible. That's not sustainable. And so what I've said is... I no, it's, it's not. I can't imagine it, It's not. We've got to fix today's marketplace. And, you know, my plans are let's, let's reactivate the federal reinsurance program. You know, in Minnesota, 
we put in, in place, and frankly, more Republicans and Democrats voted for it, a reinsurance program. We had that as part of the ACA when it was first introduced, and um, it sunset. And so we need to do that at the um, federal level. But at the end of the day, Esme, all these conversations are about the cost of health insurance, not about why is the cost of health care going up so much. And so we've got to take the, we've got to do some things to stabilize the insurance marketplace, no doubt. But I spent 22 years working in health care and I grew up in a family without access to health insurance for a lot of my own childhood. So um, there's no one who understands better. If you can't afford it, it's not available to you. We've got to stand up to big pharma about prescription drug prices. Uh, we've got to look at you know, adding competition into the in into the marketplace. The only reason you would oppose setting up a buy-in to Medicare, not a subsidized program, but you choose to buy a program for Medicare, just like you choose United or Blue Cross, is for some reason you want to protect protect big insurance companies. I don't think that's who needs protecting. I think those farmers in Mazeppa are the ones who need protecting. In terms of uh, what the president has been pushing in his agenda, he's been talking about immigration. And let's face it, there are a lot of migrants who are working in our fields in your district, uh, in farm areas, who probably are, are, who are here illegally. What, what are you hearing about immigration issues uh, when you go door to door? Well, I, I tell you, it's that's what's so unfortunate is is this entire conversation here, especially in this last week, has uh, been a very transparent political attempt to distract voters just before an election, right? I mean, the goal is to make people forget that Republicans tried to gut pre-existing condition protections, that they haven't fixed health care, that they gave away a trillion dollars to big companies uh, with a tax bill. And I see, I, I truly believe our voters are going to see that for exactly what it is. On the other hand, you've asked a really important question. As long as our immigration system is broken, people are going to try to go around it. it sometimes it's tough for me to believe it was only five years ago in 2013 that 68 senators, including John McCain and Amy Klobuchar, on a bipartisan basis put forward and passed a bill that did a lot of different things. One, it provided funding for additional border security. I think there were 600 miles of additional fencing. It provided more money for judges so that we could stop this two-year delay in actually adjudicating these immigration cases. Because again, if you think it's going to take you two years just to figure out whether you can come into the country, that encourages people to go around the system. And we all know that um, the dreamers, the people who've been here, were brought here as children, they're in our high schools, they're in our military, that we ought to provide a path to citizenship for these people. And again, this is about law-abiding immigrants and how do we create a system where they come through a legal process. And, you know, frankly, I'm, you know, sick and tired of Jason Lewis lying about my positions on uh, this topic. And, uh, you know, it's it's just been a consistent theme based on fear mongering. All right. Well, listen, Angie Craig, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know you've got a slew of events to go to, I think, still tonight. And then for the next uh, couple of days, obviously, uh, the campaign will continue. Will you be campaigning on Election Day as well? You bet. I actually, uh, it's kind of funny. We cut an ad and at the end we say off to Shakopee. It's uh, me driving around in my Jeep and we're going to end uh, in Shakopee uh, on election night around 7 o'clock. 
<laughs> All right. Well, listen, um, Angie Craig, thank you so much for joining us. And we certainly will obviously be following your race, the second congressional district race on Tuesday evening. Thank you so much, Esme. Absolutely. That is Angie Craig. And again, we did reach out to Congressman Lewis and he was uh, tied up at, at an event tonight. But that is one of the districts that really uh, a lot of people are looking at. Uh, there are f- actually now five districts that are really considered to be in play. There's that first district with uh, – uh, Jim Hagedorn and Dan Fian. Uh, that is the Tim Walls district that he is uh, leaving to run for governor. You've got the second district with Angie Craig and Jason Lewis. You've got the third district uh, with Dean Phillips and Eric Paulson. And now, again, as I said this earlier, Real Clear Politics has said that the seventh congressional district, which has been held for three decades by Colin Peterson, is now a toss-up. It's not really clear how real clear politics determined that because I haven't seen any independent polling, but we will in at seven thirty ask uh, uh, Mr. Hughes, who is running for um, is running against Colin Peterson, what he thinks <laughs> led to that. So Dave Hughes is the candidate who's running against Colin Peterson. So we are going to take a break right now. Uh, we'll give you some weather, and when we come back, uh, we are going to be do- joined by Dr. Lucy Turcott. Uh, she is going to talk to us about some research on childhood cancer survivors and the link to breast cancer later on in life. Uh, so she's going to get into that. So keep it here, folks. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 634 in the Twin Cities. A lot of really amazing work is going on in the field of research for breast cancer. It's one of the reasons there have been so many advances and so many breakthroughs and the reason why so many people are actually able to – are survivors now uh, that maybe a, a number of years ago they would not have been. Uh, Dr. Lucy Turcott is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Minnesota Medical School, and she has just received a four-year grant from the National Institute of Health, allowing her to continue work uh, to study subsequent breast cancers among survivors of childhood cancer. Uh, and Dr. Lucy Turcott is joining us right now. Dr. Turcott, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me, Esme. All right. Let me ask you this. Uh, To what degree uh, does somebody who survives a childhood cancer, are they at risk for getting another cancer at some point in their life? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's something a lot of people aren't aware of. But what we know is that children who have cancer go on to have a risk for developing another type of cancer, whether it be breast cancer or something else that's anywhere from three to six times that of the general population. And oftentimes those cancers aren't occurring until 10 or 20 years after their initial childhood cancer diagnosis. Wow. And and do you know why? Yeah. We've done a lot of research over the last several years to better understand why this is happening to survivors. And unfortunately, a large part of that risk is because of the treatments that we actually are giving uh, for the childhood cancer. So, when we're using high doses of chemotherapy, radiation therapy, or, you know, in some cases, even bone marrow transplant, all of those treatments can have really toxic effects for our children and unfortunately put them at higher risk for cancer down the road. Okay. Is that also the case for adults who are survivors of, of let's say, one cancer? Are they also at greater risk for getting another cancer later in their life? Absolutely. You know, I... I think we focus on it so much in the childhood cancer survivors because they've got so many life years ahead of them. Right. But it's it's definitely the case for adult survivors as well. Wow. 
Is there, and you're saying that you feel that there's de- definitively a link between the actual treatment, which is so sort of tragic that, that, that it's actually what helps them recover and beat the cancer the first time is actually contributing to situations where they could develop cancer more, or more likely to develop it later on. What, what are you looking at in terms of alternative therapies, if there are any, that would lessen that risk? Oh, that's a great question. You know, one of the things we were able to show over the last few years that we know that radiation therapy, particularly, probably more than any of the therapies that we use, puts individuals at higher risk for developing secondary cancers, as well as a number of other health complications later in life. And so over time with therapies, we worked really hard to, when possible, eliminate radiation as a part of treatment. And we were the first group actually to show that that uh, elimination and reduction of dosing of our radiation therapy has actually resulted in reduced rates of secondary cancers. So that's been really exciting. I, I think the other piece that we're hopeful about is the use of more targeted or uh, immunotherapies as a way of hopefully preventing uh, secondary cancers. And when you say illumination, w- what exactly is that? Um, oh, I'm not sure. Illumination. Um, well, I think you used the word illumination, but, but what, what are some of the things? Can you just sort of withhold the radiation? Oh, so what we found is that oftentimes to eliminate or reduce the use of radiation, we've had to alter therapies in other ways. And so sometimes that means using um, larger doses or different types of chemotherapies in combinations. But over the last several years, as our technology and our ability to understand cancer has improved, we've also been able to identify specific targets on cancer cells so that we can develop therapies that are really meant to be targeted to the cancer cell and um, less toxic to the rest of the body. And so that's, that's really the direction that cancer therapies are going right now is, wow. um, you know, hoping to develop therapies that treat the cancer and, you know, spare the, the child. Right. Is there, um, in, in terms of, is, is there a more likelihood of, of survivors of childhood cancer developing breast cancer as opposed to another form of cancer? Yeah, unfortunately, breast cancer is what we found to be the the most frequently observed type of secondary cancer. Really? And so I, I think one of the things people are often very surprised at is when we look at uh, females who've been treated with radiation to their chest or uh, upper part of their abdomen, we actually are seeing that their rates of developing breast cancer are are really similar to women who have the BRCA or the BRCA1 and 2 gene mutations, which we know puts women at very high risk for, for breast cancer. So the, the risk or the rates of breast cancer are, are quite high in our female survivors. Wow. Okay. And how about male survivors of cancer? Because like men can get breast cancer as well. They can. We're not seeing it at the same rates, despite many men receiving that um, chest tissue uh, radiation therapy. So we certainly know that they are at increased risk, but not new to the extent that females are. Uh, Dr. Lucy Turcott is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Minnesota Medical School, and she's gotten uh, just got a grant from the National Institute of Health to help her continue her work studying um, breast cancer that has occurred amongst survivors of childhood cancer. You know, I, I've, I've had... Um, Many friends and relatives who who have had breast cancer, and and many of them have have had such success with treatments. Um, 
but then there are others who have had a, the type of breast cancer that that is devastating and aggressive. Are the survivors of childhood cancer getting the more aggressive forms of breast cancer? That's actually one of the questions we're trying to understand better with this grant and the work that I'm doing right now. So we think that the types of breast cancers that female survivors are developing are quite similar to the general population, so not necessarily more aggressive. But we also know that because of the treatments that they received as children, so lots of chemotherapy or radiation, they often aren't able to receive the same types of standard therapies that other women with breast cancer could receive safely. And so in that way, we don't understand exactly how their survival or their outcomes compare to other women with breast cancer. Because, you know, it's a diagnosis of of breast cancer, you know, often does. I just know so many people um, who who have survived it for decades now. And and the outcome is so positive for so many people, but obviously for for others, it's it's not. What is it that differentiates that? Just just the type of it. Sure, there's there's a lot of things that can differentiate. We know that the there's certain uh, hormone receptors that can be expressed in the cancer, and so the presence or absence of those can certainly predict how well someone will do, and also whether the breast cancer has gone to other parts of the body or is metastatic certainly makes it harder to treat. Okay. And and is I assume their early detection is probably pretty key. Oh, absolutely. And I think for our survivors, one of the key components of their long-term care plans is starting that screening process earlier than they would if they hadn't had a childhood cancer. Okay. So, so in other words, people who are survivors of childhood cancer, you recommend that they had the kinds of screening much earlier or or, or more regularly than other people for all different kinds of cancer? Absolutely. So for women who receive radiation to their chest, uh, even at very small doses, we're recommending that they start uh, mammograms and actually breast MRIs as well, you know, as early as their mid-20s. Wow. Okay. Now, the breast MRI, is, is um, is that more sensitive than a mammogram? We think the combination of the two of them is more sensitive and allows better detection, especially in potentially younger, more dense female breasts. Okay. And because that's something that, I mean, is that readily available, the MRI? It may not be at some centers, and that's part of the reason we try to get a lot of our survivors into our survivorship long-term clinics so that we can help connect them with sites that do offer the appropriate screening um, screening that they would need. And and when it comes to, to your work and your research in, into childhood cancers, is there a type of cancer amongst children uh, that, that survive cancer that, that makes them more prone to having breast cancer? In other words, is it bone cancer victims, you know, or survivors are, are more likely to get breast cancer as opposed to maybe somebody who would beat leukemia? That's a, it's a really good question. And Historically, it's been uh, survivors of Hodgkin lymphoma who've had the highest risk for developing breast cancers, and primarily that's due to the treatments that they receive for for the Hodgkin lymphoma. And so we used to treat um, women and men who developed Hodgkin's with fairly high doses of radiation, and as we've recognized the long-term effects of that, we've certainly modified therapies, but 
historically, that's been our highest risk group for developing breast cancer. And isn't Hodgkin's lymphoma, I mean, how, how would, when it comes to childhood cancers, isn't that a fairly prevalent one? It is. It's one of our more common uh, types of cancer that we see, particularly in adolescent and young adult um, uh, patients. Right. And is there, um, what, what's the trigger there? Is it family history or is it just, it can just occur? For the most part, we see that it's um, pretty sporadic. So there's, there's not a lot of rhyme and reason that we've been able to identify for a lot of our childhood cancers as to why kids develop them. There's certainly some that are associated with certain genetic issues, but for the most part, there's nothing that can be done to prevent them, and uh, we don't always know why they happen. Um, Dr. Turcott, can you tell us tell us how you go about the study? Obviously, it's, it's wonderful that you've received this grant, and I know that it's not easy to get these grants, but, but how are you actually going to structure your study? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's, uh, it's been a, a really interesting study to put together. So I work in collaboration with a, a very large study called the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study that was initially started at the University of Minnesota uh, about two decades ago. Uh, and now is based out of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And that study uh, consists of approximately 30,000 individuals who are long-term survivors of childhood cancer. And my role with my smaller part of that study is really looking at these secondary cancers. And for this grant, looking specifically at women who've had childhood cancer and gone on to develop a secondary breast cancer. So I'm going through all... uh, about 500 of their medical records in detail. I'm looking at all of those characteristics of the breast cancer that we talked about. So whether it is hormone receptor positive, if it's metastatic, what did it look like at the time it was diagnosed? And then trying to understand how were those women treated? So did they receive what we consider to be standard of care breast cancer treatment that uh, they'd receive if they, even if they weren't a childhood cancer survivor? And then I also want to understand how did they do with that treatment? Did they they have increased toxicity, increased numbers of complications? Were they able to complete the therapy as they were prescribed? And at the end of the day, how did their overall survival down the road compare to other women with breast cancer? And the overarching goal of the whole project for me really is to help identify the best therapies for women who are developing secondary breast cancer based on their previous exposures so that we have better treatment guidelines for oncologists and then for these women as they're being diagnosed with breast cancer with the hope that we can can ultimately improve their survival long-term and their quality of life. So you're looking primarily at how to treat those who who have developed the secondary cancer, the this, this secondary breast, uh, breast cancer after overcoming a childhood cancer, and what are you sort of leaning towards or what seems to be the best? I mean, because I I would assume just going after it with radiation once again would be problematic because that caused the problem in the first place. Absolutely, and for most of these women, they really aren't in a position to receive radiation because of their treatments that they had already received. So Right now, we're really in the preliminary stages of collecting the treatment data, and I, I don't have too much more on what the best therapies are, but I'm hoping within the coming year to have much more information on that so we can start to work with oncologists 
who are treating these women to figure out what the best next steps are for developing better treatments. And is there anybody looking at, is there another study looking at the back end of that on on how better to treat these children? Absolutely. So that's a huge part of what we're doing at the University of Minnesota. We have a number of researchers who are working on developing those more specific therapies. So how can we treat these cancers, beat cancer for good, and not have all of these long-term complications like secondary cancers? And a number of the scientists within our um, department are are very successfully developing early-stage therapies that are in trials right now. Wow. Okay, because there's so much uh, going on here, and this hits so many people, so many families, and it's just... um... It's horrible to think of these people who who have overcome this extraordinary thing, uh, uh, had this battle as a child, and then to realize that they're more likely to get nailed again, you know, as an adult is 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 pretty scary stuff, and it's got to be so difficult to deal with for the families. Um, Dr. Lucy Turcott, uh, assistant professor, Department of Pediatrics at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so exciting to have the opportunity to share our work. Right. Well, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting work, and and I, obviously, so many people are affected by cancer, and it's just um, something that, that that people like you are, are hoping and and working to make it better for all of us. So, thank you again, and we appreciate your time this evening. Thank you so much, Esme. All right, all right, folks. Uh, a lot ahead on this Saturday evening, uh, and remember, folks, tomorrow this is the good daylight saving. Your clocks fall back tonight. I guess officially it's 2 o'clock, right? That, that's when they do it. And I guess somebody who has to get up really early on Sunday mornings, because please watch WCCO-TV 6 a.m. and The Politics Show 10.30 a.m. with Pat Kessler and I. I, I always am so paranoid that I'm going to like mess it up or that my iPhone won't <laughs> revert. But But it's not as bad as like, the spring forward because then you're really, you're really, really in trouble. <laughs> it's better to be an hour early, I guess, than late, right? <laughs> it's better to be an hour early. Yes, I don't. I don't think. I don't think that's. I don't think that's ever happened. But um, I, I always. I'm just trusting on the iPhone God to. I know. I think the only time I've messed that up is when I tried to outthink my phone and I didn't know that the phone was going to take care of it, which they do. Like if you right, have a right, phone, right, right, right. it's oh, smart. So, so you try it to knows set it better. It, you try to set it. Like, yeah. An and then, hour. <laughs> and then you get all my, and you can't figure out which way to do it. Do I go ahead or back yeah, or what yeah. am I doing? Or what, what's the real time or is my, is the alarm right or whatever? I, I, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Some of you out there might not know, but if you have to get up super early, I, I, I get it, David. I, I totally get it. All right, folks. Um, let's take a quick break. Break. We'll be back with more on News Radio 830 WCCO. 655 in the Twin Cities, uh, November 3rd. We are just, I guess, depending on how you count it, two full days from Election Day. It, it's I uh, can't wait to talk to David Schultz about this. Uh, it, it is um, – it's been a pretty hectic election season and I think it's going to – I think some of these races are going to be really close. And uh, I'm scared to make predictions because in 2016, I did not think President Trump was going to win, although – I'm not sure that President Trump thought, having read some of the books, I, he didn't think he was going to win either. And Hillary Clinton certainly didn't think he was going to win. But uh, it's going to be really interesting to see uh, if there is the so-called red wave or a blue wave. Uh, and we'll get uh, David Schultz's opinion on that. I do want to invite you to tune in to The Politics Show uh, tomorrow with myself and Pat Kessler 
10.30 a.m. We're going to be kind of going over the key races, including these key congressional races and also the attorney general's race, which has suddenly been a barn burner uh, and and certainly up in the air. You've got the governor's race. You've got the two U.S. Senate races. I think, I think obviously uh, with uh, Senator Klobuchar, uh, she has had at least a 20 to 30 point lead over Representative Jim Newberger. I think that looks like that is a pretty solid D. Uh, the – I am hearing that that the race between Senator Smith and Senator and State Senator Karen Housley is tightening, and that's one of the things that that's so unpredictable about Minnesota, and I, I think in general about these races is that these polls can be wrong. And, and you know, we were speaking earlier this hour with Angie Craig; she was up by five points, five points with just uh, I think about a week out, maybe even closer than that. And she ended up losing in part because there was a surge of conservative voters, sort of a Trump wave. Uh, there was also a third-party candidate that did a lot better. So there are all these factors that can make elections so much more unpredictable. Also, I think I think the polls really are struggling to deal with the fact that so few people have landlines now. And, and that's a different dynamic and I don't think the pollsters have quite figured that out. All right. Well, coming up in our next hour, we are going to talk with Sue Abderholden uh, about NAMI, uh, about mental health, Everson Griffin. And we'll also be joined by David Hughes, the candidate in the 7th District, and also Jeff Johnson, who's running for governor on the Republican ticket. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.